I said it before, but I'm gonna say it once again, and I think maybe maybe in a better way. Uh, the ability and the take the time to take small risks before before the big project of, of your life. Um, I think that's that's great advice and that's a great practice in just like in relationships, you're not gonna get married often. You're not, oftentimes, you're not gonna get married to the first person that you have a relationship with. Um, I know some people do, and uh, but but often you kind of practice. Um, try try to do that. And if I have one regret, uh, you know, thinking about myself as a student, I was very much focused on books, which is fine because I mean I was taught by my mom that I had to do the homework and stuff, but not not so much in practice. I think I, I should have done and I, I would have enjoyed also kind of like putting the theoretical knowledge into practice in small, tiny, tiny projects that you can, you know, you can fail uh, terribly and not get hurt too much. You know, that's my the only advice that I have. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations with entrepreneurs who started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and today I'm talking with Italian entrepreneur Enrico Casati. Enrico studied in top business schools in Milan, Shanghai, and the United States. However, in 2012, Enrico and his business partner embarked on an ambitious entrepreneurial journey when they founded Velasca a high-quality men's shoe brand that, in his words, ended up teaching him most of his professional and personal life lessons. Today, the company has evolved from building an online brand to adding high-end fashions for men and shoes and accessories for women sold online and in retail stores throughout Italy and in major cities around the world, including New York City. In this episode, Enrico shares valuable lessons about building, funding, and staying the course on an amazing 10-year journey from startup to successful fashion house. Enrico, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Ciao. <laughs> Ciao, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a really an honor to, to, to be speaking with you today. Well, I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you. It's really fun uh, when my students at the University of Tampa connect me and uh, we were connected, you know, I, I was making a trip there to Italy and we were connected, but I'm back in the States now and you're in Milano, I think. Yeah. And uh, so we're recording remotely, but I'm, I'm really excited. I'm going to have several uh, you're one of three Italian entrepreneurs that are guests, special guests on on the In Factor. So really excited to have you today and to learn more about your company, Velasca. Is that am I saying that correctly? Yeah, perfectly. Velasca. That's an excellent yeah. way to pronounce it. So tell us a little bit about what what's Velasca and how did you get started on your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so thank you, thank you, Mattia, for connecting us. Uh, um, it's it's a real honor uh, to build a bridge between the U.S. and, and Italy. You, the U.S. is in my heart because I've uh, I've studied for a few months in at the University of Denver when I was uh, twenty twenty one. Yeah, I turned twenty one actually in the U.S. Hence the great English. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. So I had a great time. It was uh, was really eye opening, an eye opening experience to to me at the time. So it's it's really in my heart. And uh, and now 
I'm, I'm going to start from the, the from the end. Actually, one of the, the last stores that we opened is actually in New York, in Elizabeth Street, in uh, Nolita. So every time I get a chance to go to New York, I absolutely enjoy it. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, I have a lot of uh, great American friends, so it's it's, it's really special to me uh, to to be part of this podcast. Essentially, in Velasco, we started ten years ago. We started in 2013. Uh, with a very very simple yet very ambitious idea, I would say, which was the to to kind of leverage what was happening with Facebook and you know e-commerce and the digital uh, communication channels and sales channels that were becoming available to the to the general public and also to you know small really uh, no money entrepreneurs like like ourselves ten years ago, and um, kind of leverage on that to build a brand of originally it was just handcrafted shoes for men. Um, and leveraging these these sales and communication channels to build a community around the globe of enthusiasts without having to go through the tra the um, traditional um, sales channels. So the showroom, the, the the agents, the distributors, you know, the traditional value chain of of fashion. Um, why is that? We we kind of bet on the fact that the consumer nowadays would uh, understand and recognize the value for money. Uh, for our products. Uh, so the idea has always been to build a brand of made in Italy, handcrafted uh, products, like sh starting from shoes, but products in general, selling the made in Italy as, as you know, in terms of manufacturing excellence, but also selling the Italian style. So the more like, like a soft kind of skill to, the idea was to kind of say, okay, let's, let's say, uh, there's someone who lives in, in New York who works in uh, finance or so is a manager. Let's take him through Instagram. Let's take him through Facebook at the time. Let's take him through whatever, like a newsletter to the little streets of Milan. And let's kind of let's try to make him experience going into a nice shop in Milan, a nice brand that is local, that has handcrafted products, right? That are a great value for money because you don't have to overpay for all the all the steps of the intermediation between you know the producer and the final consumer. And let's leverage on that. Let's leverage on the power of you know media and digital to create that kind of brand. So that was the original idea. A lot of it was based on intuition because we we it was a first entrepreneurial experience. We didn't really have any money. We didn't have experience in e-commerce, and we didn't have experience in fashion. So. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> from scratch. But the, that was the beauty. I'm 35 now. So that was the beauty of being 25. Uh, two years experience in banking. Um, didn't really like what I was doing. I was, um, I feel spoiled now saying it, but I was so bored and working in a bank that I wanted to change, uh, change job. In any case, I was looking at different opportunities. I was looking a lot into digital. Because I mean, like now it's 2023, so it's kind of like it's obvious to see to say, you know, I want to bet my career on digital. But 10 years ago, it wasn't exactly like that. It was uh, we still was we would still get a lot of uh, questions about, are you really sure selling shoes online? It's something that people do. People really click on ads. Like we we still got a lot of uh, we would get a lot of, of of these questions that now that they seem like trivial, right? Um, it's changed. Um, so, so it was like the beauty of like essentially being a bit naive and, uh, and having like nothing to lose. I mean, we are, uh, I want to be clear, like I, I, I risked a lot in terms of my professional career, in terms of my reputation, let's say all my friends said, you're crazy. Like you're all oh, in, in some way, like 
we um, we really like what you're doing. Another way is why are you leaving a job in banking, like well paid, living abroad to go back to your hometown? I, I actually went back to living with my parents for the first year to be able not to pay rent. Right. I didn't want to pay rent. So I, I, I had to do that. But on the other side, I got to be honest, like I never I didn't risk my life. Right. Not doing this. I mean, I always want to contextualize the fact that um, if someone listening, right, someone who's a student maybe thinking you know of starting their own project i think it's it's um doing it at 2025 is a great way of having little to lose uh you know before you have children before you have a mortgage before then you know uh you can really take risks right and especially if you do it in a sector in an industry that is new and up and coming and where you as a 20 something year old uh, a user right of that platform of that technology right you have an advantage over a 50 plus year old that has a lot more experience a lot more connections a lot more money but is not a user so does not really understand what you know this new technology new platform new whatever is right so i think that's that's a great way to start on the other side you like me you're gonna get a lot of uh slaps on the face like we say in italy uh because of lack of experience essentially lack of money and everything. The journey has been fun, uh, but it's not been without obstacles, I'd say. Sure, sure. And that I think that's true for everyone that accomplishes anything um, successfully. You know, there's something along the way. There's a lot in there to talk about. So let's talk a little bit more about your personal journey. So you studied business, right? Yeah. And went into banking and probably, I mean, you mentioned you moved back with mom and dad, um, you know, for a while so you could avoid rent. And, you know, a lot of times uh, pursuing an entrepreneurial path is something that, um, that, that someone grows up with and their parents support and their, you know, everybody around them supports. But as you pointed out, sometimes giving up that secure job uh, can, can lead to a lot of family members and others saying, Whoa, what are you doing here? So was entrepreneurship something you always wanted to do? Or did, was there some pivotal moment that, uh, you know, you said you were bored with banking. It, you know, interestingly, I have a similar story. I started in a bank too. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great start story, but I didn't last very long either. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot to learn there. And I'm sure a lot that has, has proven valuable to you in your career. But, you know, was this something, being an entrepreneur, you always wanted to do? Was it something that your your family found to be acceptable? Or were you going way outside of the norm yeah, with everybody great, around you? It's a great question. I think it's, uh, a lot of it comes down to, in hindsight, I can say this, a lot of it comes down to the fact that my father is an entrepreneur. And he's always been an entrepreneur. My, my granddad, um, started as a small shop selling, um, first it was fa fabrics and then lining. So the inside of jackets, the inside pockets of, uh, of jeans. And, and my father like expanded the little shop into a, more like a B2B kind of uh, company. Um, it's a small company. I mean, we're talking about fifth, 10 to 15 employees. So really not really a large corporation, not really the, you know, scale up approach that we, we have here at Velasca, but still, I think in hindsight, I can say uh, for sure it helps shape my understanding of the professional world. And uh, definitely, um, I always saw him as someone that would essentially blend personal and professional life, not really having to be 
you know, in a, in a suit and a tie every day, but still, you know, changing. The, 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 the thing that I admire the most about, you know, my dad and, and that I love about my job is that one day you're talking to a, the accountant and you're, you're doing like accounting and, and financial stuff. The other day, there's something about product design. The next day, there's something about marketing. So you really kind of need to be very broad, you, a skill set that is broad rather than vertical, right? And, and that's something that I've always seen my father do, actually. He would be, you know, I don't know, unloading a truck full of lining uh, and fabrics. And the next day, maybe uh, trying to get, you know, the sales channel working better. So something that is so completely different. One is like operational based. The other one is sales. Uh, but you, you kind of need to be able to do all of it, right? Uh, maybe you're not the best, but all of it. So that, that definitely shaped my, my, my path. I, I have to say that um, I did not grow up uh, wanting to be an entrepreneur when I was in high school. Uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an archaeologist. <laughs> when I was in, in high school and early early years at university, I wanted to be a diplomat. So into diplomacy, I was I started studying French. You know, I started doing the model United Nations, uh, started simulating that, and then I slowly but gradually changed my mind about that. I didn't. I didn't feel like it was. Uh, it's a very, it's a very long career before you actually um, have an impact. I believe in what, what you're doing, and then I kind of realized that the presidents and the prime ministers um, are the ones um, doing the foreign policy and not the ministry of foreign policy. So I said, okay, <laughs> no, let's do something else. And I, I have to say another another big factor in my in my wanting to be. To start a company is uh, a few of my friends actually. When I when I started, I started in the U.S. and in China. I, I, my university is Bocconi, so it's in Milan. But I took advantage of the international prog programs that I had. So in, yeah. during my bachelor, I went to the U.S. for a semester, and in, in, in my master's, I did a double degree with Shanghai. And in, in that group of, of people, in those uh, those 20, 20 people that came with me in a in a mixed class, there were twenty Italians and twenty Chinese. I really got to to see the ambitious, you know, uh, very very ambitious, very courageous, very up and going kind of uh, people, uh, and some of them, you know, had already been thinking about digital tech, entrepreneurship. They were really striving to, you know, open their own companies. And instead of saying like, instead of saying I want to be an intern in an investment bank, they would be saying uh, I want to be an intern at a startup. You know, and this was 2009, so it was uh, a while back. And I, and I hadn't, I didn't know that back then, that it was a whole world, you know, maybe maybe in the US it was it was more popular, but it wasn't in Europe, certainly not in, in Italy. So when I, when I heard about this, it kind of like made me realize, wow, I'm way more excited about this than anything else. You know, the ability to start from scratch, draw something, you know, on the on the board, get like people that I know, maybe some friends to go along with me on the journey and then, you know, put up a website and try something on the market. So I've always been fascinated by the fact that you can talk all you want, you know, but unless someone brings out the credit card and pays for what you're, you know, selling, you cannot, you're still just talking. So I just wanted to see, okay, but are people actually going to buy, right? So that's what I've, it, it still fascinates me to, to this very day. That people come in our stores or come online and buy our products, and it's 
it's crazy, right? If you think about it, but it it really it's something that gets inside your skin for sure. Yeah, being being a creator actually yeah. to create something from scratch. I I know what you mean. It 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 gets uh, addictive actually. Yeah, I think. But but the the you know what a great lesson in that last um, that last little bit of comment when you were talking about getting someone to buy your product. So, you know, working with a lot of entrepreneurs over the years, uh, you know, I've seen that many times that, you know, a startup will just kind of drag things on and on and on because they're kind of scared of that process of putting something out there and getting that feedback, which can be um, both positive and negative or devastating even at times, you know, when you get feedback that's not what you expected. So what a great lesson there. Um, you know, it's it's just an idea until you put it out there and create value for somebody. And I think anybody listening that wants to be an entrepreneur or that's practicing entrepreneurship now is, is starting to learn that. So yeah, lots of, uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, I, yeah. I agree. If, if I can add something, a point to this, it's um, something that looking back, I, I wish I'd done more is instead of uh, doing it all for the first time with my first company, I wish I'd done like more tiny entrepreneurial projects, uh, but not just at university, not just taking courses, but literally just let's 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 go with the simple, 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 very basic example of the lemon stand, right? The lemonade stand, or uh, well, I yeah. think the US is much more towards this, but Italy is not that entrepreneurial in this sense. So tiny projects that even if you fail, you're not going to hurt yourself uh, badly. You know, you're going to maybe lose a few hundred euros, whatever dollars, but you're not going to hurt yourself, like really hurt yourself. So I wish I'd done it. Even like I wish I open up a company, even just like understanding the admin and the accounting really by doing it instead of just studying the exam of accounting, which is really complex and complicated, but it gets even too complicated for to be um, to just for, for a small company, right? I wish I just opened a company before my, 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 before Velasca, right? Kind of like to take it away That's and say, okay, I know how to do that. So there's only, <laughs> there's only like, I, I need to, I need to only focus on market risk. You know, everything else I've already done it, but I've seen it, you know, how to market stuff. A lot of times at Velasca, I had to think about stuff for the very first time in my life. Really think about, not study it, but think about it like really internalizing the concepts and putting them to work in the real world. So if, if, I, like, if I can say one thing to maybe some students that want to, want to go along this journey, um, try stuff, small stuff as much as possible. That's great advice. I love that. And and I think you're right. I mean, it's <clears throat> it's an approach we take in our university programs here in the United States. It's, um, you know, I've had several Italian students um, in our graduate program, for example, where they have to build something. But I think I was mentioning to you, one of our students is in fashion or former students is in fashion. And uh, when he was in, uh, when he was doing his project, he actually worked on something in soccer, which was another passion that he had. So he developed something and and built that and worked on it and then moved to fashion. So I guess um, one lesson there is that a lot of the principles are the same across industry. 
um, but um, you know, practicing almost. Um, and and I do call entrepreneurship a practice because I don't think you ever perfect it. I think you keep showing up every day and Fair. and you learn something. And that that kind of leads me to uh, other questions about learning. You know, um, entrepreneurship is is kind of like any other experiment. And you're learning something along the way all the time. And I think that's the, something else that you were talking about. Let's talk a little bit about Velasca. Uh, so you started out, um, I'd love to know how you, how you made that decision to pursue men's shoes. Uh, you know, a lot of your passion was around using the technology available to build a community, which I love. I think that's a very... Um, you know, smart approach to building a company these days. But how did you decide to go into fashion? Was it because of the history there in Milan, which is the area that you're from? Or, um, yeah. you know, did you just wake up one day and say, let's do men's shoes? I mean, how did that all happen? Because there's usually a good story there. <laughs> yeah, crazy, crazy idea to, to get into this industry. Um a lot of it has to do with the, the fact that I'm from Milan. So fashion is definitely one of the big industries here. And it's it's very it's very common, very, very easy to know people in the industry, to, to see fashion people around. I think there's really a, um, you know, a unique, a unique skill slash uh, luck, I would say, of being Italian and growing up among the beauty of the architecture. And, and, and a lot of it is design, right? It's... Um, Kind of training the eye to the to the to the right uh, design, the right pa patterns, the right color combinations. Anyways, it's just like a, a soft uh, skill that you you just uh, acquire by by growing up here. But there there is an, an anecdote anecdote something that happened in 2012 uh, during the summer. I had uh, Jakpo, my business partner, and my my brother, are best friends, and they came over to to Asia. I was I was working in banking in Singapore. Um, at the time, and I asked them to to buy a pair of uh, handcrafted shoes in a local shop in in Milan, and to bring it over to me because I was the only options that I had available were essentially Ferragamo and Tots and all those brands that uh, they're amazing. I mean, some of the products I love, uh, they just uh, they're very expensive. That's that's all. <laughs> I I I think we can all agree that it's not cheap, you know, to buy these kind of products. So they're they're excellent. They're handcrafted. A lot of the times, the leather. Um, we use the same, a, a lot of the same materials, the same uh, manufacturers. So I, I know how they're made and they're amazing. But as a 25, like, like I was a 25-year-old analyst in a, in a bank, it would still be quite, um, quite expensive to, to buy these kind of products. products. They, they cater, let's say, to a different uh, target, I would say. Um, so I said, like, um, I love this approach. I love the fact that especially especially shoes, but in general, high-end luxury manufacturing of fashion is still very much present in Italy. It's one of the things that we have districts, you know, uh, for, whether it is like shirts made in Naples or made in Puglia, whether it is like blazers, Puglia in Veneto or jeans or shoes. So Italy has a lot, sorry, Italy has a lot of uh, different districts that, <clears throat> are very flexible in the manufacturing of these different categories and they kind of form a network of companies uh, that can you know really deliver uh, high quality uh, know-how because a, a lot of countries try to uh, try to kick kickstart this uh, this district but didn't 
you know, were not su successful. And, you know, in a business, uh, in business terms, we, we also thought it would be a com an unfair competitive advantage also to produce in Italy by being Italian. And uh, I'm going to explain myself a, a little better. We, we did nothing illegal, of course, like keeping it legal, but just go by going there um, and being Italian with an Italian company, it's just like easier to get payment terms and, and discounts um, than the same project, you know, with the same uh, orders, you know, the same ability to, to grow, but from Americans or Germans or Chinese. Just because of even just a legal entity, it would be much more difficult for a manufacturer to go after, you know, credits, right? So um, accounts receivable. So they they gave us like sixty days, ninety days uh, payment terms uh, from the very beginning. They gave us uh, prices that are still, you know, they're very favorable. Um, so we kind of had this unfair competitive advantage, and we said, okay, let's let's focus on something that Italy. Is good at is good at making. Actually, it's is excellent at making, and we're gonna build a brand um, highlighting this excellency. You know, highlighting this know-how that we have, but in a way also bringing this know-how into the future, like into the modern era. Era because a lot of times, like handcrafted workshops, um, so handcraft um, workshops, they're very much stuck in the past you know before before we came along when we we started creating content we started delivering this content and we started like um creating a community that would see the faces the hands of these people they were still like the, the, these workshops like they don't even have a website now in 2023 you can imagine 10 years ago so it was really no spotlight on them and we rediscovered them in a way leveraging on something that they were already doing so we did not teach them how to make shoes or now to make shirts it's something that is available but we um highlighted it right and we and, and slowly but surely i mean when you see something going the ball rolling like like we say you 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 kind of like start to get ideas on how to expand we started with handcrafted shoes for men then we added like apparel now and, and the women's line and accessories and, and you grow and you make your website your website better, you attract investors. So it's it's also we also open stores like um, DOS. So you you get a taste of something that is working. And you know, 10 years later you you wake up and you you have something going, you know? <laughs> yeah. How, it's an amazing story, though. And and one of the interesting things about it is you have a partner, right? Yeah. And so um, sometimes that's a great experience. Sometimes it's uh, challenging. So how tell me about your partnership and how you and your partner, um, like, how did you know that it was going to work between the two of you? How do you make decisions? Um, how does that work for you, partnerships? It's like a, it's like a marriage, right? You never know. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> <hoping> <laughs> <for> the best. <laughs> Just like, like continuing with the metaphor of the, of the marriage, um, there are many, many ways actually to mitigate the risk of things going badly. Um, you can talk to lawyers about, how to structure your board, how to structure the, you know, the shareholder, shareholders agreement, you know, the way to make it work, even if things go bad, if you fight over something, you argue over something, there are methods, because obviously it happens so many times, uh, you know, the law 
and the practice, you know, has been developed, well developed. But at the end of the day, like a marriage, if, if two people work together, they work together really, really well. And, you know, all of that stuff just maybe it's written down on a paper, but doesn't really hold in real life. And that's what you want, right? So you want to focus not just on, uh, not so much on, yeah, how to mitigate risk if things go wrong. That's something useful. But the first question should be, um, how do I make sure that I partner with someone that I'm going to be, let's say I'm going to be working with them for the rest of my life. Like you literally, like in my view, you literally have to kind of like take the example to the extreme to, to have the gut feeling to say, okay, yeah, I feel confident. At least now, today, with the information that I have today, I feel confident about, you know, opening up a company with this person. Then things can happen. You will all know that you never have like a 100% certainty. But at the end of the day, the, you know, in hindsight, I can say that my business partner and I, we work well together for a number of reasons. But number one is we never uh, raise our voice and we always say, even if we disagree, we have a rule of disagreeing over this subject matter and not pointing fingers at each other. Right? So we. Yeah. It, it, it... And and I'm a, I'm guessing that you have different skills that you bring to the partnership sure. as well. For sure, and that's something that's something that that's very easy actually. That's the easiest part, right? So you 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 know people around you, maybe university, you know, classmates or people in your network. It's kind of like it's the easiest part. I would say to say, okay, I'm good at you know finance and business, and maybe this person is good at product design. So we were a good match on paper, but I was, I was starting from the values side because that's more difficult. I think, you know, because skills, you can look at a CV yes. and maybe see the experience, but the values is really what's going to make the relationship work. Right. And skills can be acquired, but values, you can't, I, in my experience, you can't really change people that much on values, like true essence and DNA of that person, personality. Um, so for sure, Number one rule, get someone with complementary skills, possibly more than one person. Um, I, a, lot of, a lot of companies that I see are working well started with three or four people, actually. Make sure that there's one, um, you know, um, one person like uh, speaking with, you know, being the face of the company, speaking, especially speaking to investors and, you know, divide your roles so it doesn't create confusion. Uh, for sure, and also it create it doesn't create confusion inside internally inside the company. Uh, but other than that, that's that's the easy part. Um, I would say focus also on the values and and try to 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 be with someone that is um, when there's a problem. So many problems will be put in front of you, but when there's a problem, are you you know speaking with someone that looks for solutions or looks for me uh, other ways to create problems? That's something that I really value. Also in hiring people, it's something like, is he a person that tries to find solutions to problems or trying to, tries to find problems to solutions? You know what I'm saying? That's, that's a very yes. great skill. Yes. That's, uh, that's an attitude more than a skill. Yeah. That's yeah, that's great advice. And, and so you all have been together 10 years now, so I'm sure you've had to have a lot of tough conversations and, and like you said, you know, you've, your values have been tested. So um, really, really smart way to approach it. And I think you're right. Values are, are fundamental 
to um, to a partnership of any kind. So let's talk a little bit about your growth. You um, you went into this uh, testing shoes. So how did you scale the business? And and you mentioned that you have a store now in New York. And um, so so what's the scope of your business now? And and how did you scale? What what were some things that you did along the way to build this business? Yeah, I think it's been an interesting journey uh, also for, for listeners because we really started from scratch. We really started with uh, 20, we put 20K each in the company um, with the, you know, with the plan to create a global brand. So really, really tiny amount of money. But the idea has always been fine. We don't have that much money. Um, our families like don't have that much money to invest in a, in a startup. Um, let's just prove that we can do things uh, in, a, in a good way, in an effective way with tiny amounts of money so that money will be the only thing missing from the company, right? If we manage from day one, that's been our approach. If we can demonstrate to investors that, you know, you gave me, you know, 100 and I can return you 200, you know, it doesn't matter if about the scale of the company, what matters is like how good you are at using those funds. So um, the, one, of the, one of the first rules that we had inside the company is like, be very, very sure about the numbers on a micro scale. So even examples can vary from the cost of the products to the variable cost of, of a single transaction. So credit card commissions and you know, packaging and, and things like that to marketing, right? Cost of acquiring a customer, uh, versus, you know, the lifetime value of that single customer. So these kind of like unit economics and, and metrics were registered from day zero inside the company. And Velasquez is also a story uh, about attracting investors and getting investments from people. First, it was people, business angels, and then it was funds. Um, and really, I think the the key to that um, to that transaction was the ability to show to them that we were not just doing things out of our own gut feeling, you know, and, and, you know, kind of praying that things would go our way, but that we had the numbers to show. And everything we did was a tiny test on something that if it worked, we could, you know, put gas into gasoline and really take off. And that's, that's always been our approach. It was at the beginning with just a website, you know, um, starting to spend some, you know, some some money on Facebook ads, on Google ads, and on whatever channel, and proving that the, the different channels would work. Same with the first uh, temporary shops and and stores. We opened the first temporary shops. Shop. It was like a temporary contract. Everything was like low risk because I'm gonna put this money into this project. If it goes well, I have something to show. If it doesn't, I'm not gonna close the company because of it. So that's always been the approach. Even with new new product designs, you know, we we often like even today we often go out of stock with some products because we don't want to risk too much on inventory as an investment, right? We'd rather go out of stock than you know have overstock. That's always been the the mantra of the company. So in twenty thirteen and twenty fourteen have been about ourselves proving our worth, let's say to you know people with a little bit of money to invest in a, in a new project. And then in 2014, um, and then at the beginning of 2015, you know, within the span of four months, we raised 500K. So from, from 20K each, we raised like half a million to build a company. 
And that was a turning point for us because we, after a year and a half, more or less, of being in business, we, we were able to hire uh, two or three people to do, you know, to help us with operations. We, we were able to invest more money in marketing. We were able to open our first store, like physical store in Milan. And obviously, uh, because the banks wouldn't give us any, any working capital credit, credit line, we, we were able to uh, buy products actually to sell. So as soon as that money uh, flowed in, we already know what to do. So we didn't, like, we didn't raise money from a, you know, a piece of paper. We raised money with an existing business and we, we knew exactly what to do when the money, when the bank wire actually uh, was, was in our, was, was uh, sent. Um, and essentially within the span of, I think not even a year, we went from a business making like, first year was 60,000 euros in sales and then 200,000 second year. And then we went over uh, a million in the span of like six months. Just because it was the 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 car was ready to go, right? We it only needed gasoline, so that's that's the story. And and when we saw that, and we're like, we were like, okay, for the first time, we were like, I think we have a company. I think we're gonna have a company, so it might it might work, <laughs> you know. And this this is two yeah, this two years in the making. So every time every time I talk to students and I go to maybe Bocconi or Politecnico to to make a speech and tell my story and the story of Alaska, I always say this. Remember that it's been 24 months, right? Two years from the ver- from the inception to us to to us saying for the first time we I think we might have a company. And 24 months, you know, in the in the digital area era we live in today, where if things don't happen like in two weeks, it seems like an eternity. 24 months or two years of your life, questioning every single day, did I make the right choice? leaving banking, you know, not having a salary, uh, you know, psychologically speaking, it's very rough. So you have to be prepared to go through that. And I'm not, again, contextualizing it. I'm not saying that I was dying of hunger, not, not like that, but just psychologically, especially if you are university graduate, you're kind of spoiled because you want to go to restaurants and stuff and have like nice vacations and stuff like that. And then you go from that to, I have to save every single cent because I have this project going and it lasts for two years. Psychologically, that's the biggest challenge, I think. You have to be yeah. you have to be strong. And that's why having business partners also is is a very healthy thing to do. Because if you if you do it alone, unless you have a very, very unique personality of like a lone wolf personality, if you go alone, you risk going into depression. It's just the it's just like very natural. It's almost like the most natural thing to to be like depressed in the first six to, to 24 months of, of a new project. You know, that I love, there's so much in there, I think, so many great lessons in there uh, about, you know, the importance of proving your concept and customer validation to investment um, and how to work with investors and the mindset and, and sort of the whole psychological journey. I mean, there's a lot in there, but one of the things I, I loved hearing was your approach to working with your investors and, and proving your concept first. And, and um, you know, uh, the reality is that that sort of early stage poverty uh, that you're talking about leads to more creative responses. So one of the worst things I think that can happen is to have too much money too soon because you don't know what to spend it on, right? Totally. And so, 
Yeah. So you all are, I mean, so you and your partner, um, you know, understood that. Um, was, was that something that, you know, kind of came intuitively to you or something you learned along the way from your studies or, um, was it just an approach to kind of keep your risk down? Because that's what entrepreneurs really try to do is minimize risk. You know, everybody talks about entrepreneurs being risk takers, which they are, but every day it's like, how can I reduce my risk a oh, little for bit? Sure, for sure. I'm going to be very honest with you. Uh, it wasn't a strategy. It was just like people wouldn't give us money. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. It was out of necessity. We had to prove ourselves, period, <laughs> before anyone yeah. would take us seriously. Because that's, that's another thing when you start, when you're 25, uh, no experience, no network. You, you, the only way is to pre pro prove yourself before you get the funds. Yeah. And th there's a lesson in there for investors, right? Oh, for sure. <laughs> you know, because investing, yeah, investing too soon. Now, you've raised money, uh, you've raised quite a bit of money, I guess, along the way to build your to build out your brand. And so you've had, you've had family, friends, uh, yeah. uh, angels, funds. Have, have most of your investors been uh, from Italy or have, are you raising, have, did you raise money from, from various other countries? I know you spent time in China, right? And the U.S. and. Yeah. Yeah. Most of it has been from Italy because it's, um, it's still our number one market. Um, even though now the U.S. accounts for more than 10% of our sales, um so i think in the future that this is going to change uh I, I see i see a lot of growth opportunities in uh, for velasca in the us so i'll be honest and um but most of it is, has been from milan from from italy uh because of a number of reasons Num number one is that we live here so everything is easier like the the <clears throat> like like the silicon valley in the us or or New York, it's just that there's value in being geographically around one location because you you get to know people and you have you build a reputation and and uh, brand awareness of your company and brand awareness of yourself. So things go this way. I think we we have raised a total of twelve million euros uh, in since inception of Alaska. So you can say that we've uh, at, at a Series A uh, post Series A uh, stage. I think the Series B for Velasca will involve, for sure, international investors, possibly from France and the U.S., because those are those are the two main markets um, outside of Italy. And the the approach has been, has always been the same, uh, whether it was one single person, you know, a business angel or a vehicle or a a fund. So attention to numbers, um, attention to their needs in terms of you know we know they need to liquidate, you know, in a number of years. So you, we, we've always wanted to be attentive to the, du the duration of the, their fund if, if we kind of match the, you know, our, our own timing, right? Because you want to align yourself, all the shareholders in the timing also of your, of your company, um, as well as, you know, what kind of like uh, connections or industry knowledge or expertise they had. And the, big, the first fund that, that invested in Velasco was the number one fund for e-commerce e in Italy. And that was something that we really searched for. And then since we had a, um, a, a, an increasingly bigger retail component, we, we, also, we went to a, a fund that had a number of investments in retail. Actually, it, it was also food retail. It was not just fashion retail, but had that experience, right? So we tried to bring, you know, people 
at the same table, people with different skill sets, also on the investor side, not just like inside the company. Right, right. And, and that's so important, I think, to have smart money, uh, more than just the dollars, but, but money coming from uh, people or funds that can help you uh, with your connections and, and with the work that you need to do. You know, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, I'm, I'm really curious about the, 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 some of the challenges that you've had along the way, because you know, success, you know, challenges are always a part of every successful journey. And, um, you know, I think one reason that some people don't pursue their entrepreneurial dreams is fear of failure. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered, um, you know, what, what kind of, do you have any stories or did you, did, was there a time when you wanted to give up or came close to that? And, and any failures along the way, maybe that you'd be willing to share your, that story and sort of how you dealt with that? Many, many times I wanted to quit and not just in the first two years. Um, it was mainly because like, there's two things that, that happened. Um, I never, I never want to quit when I'm challenged uh, and when I have, you know, a, a big, big project in front of me, let's say, <clears throat> We let's say as an example, we've been trying to fundraise for a year, and we finally get the check, and we, we get new new investors on board. So so now it's time for uh, executing that that business plan. I'm super excited. I'm often very very excited when when we need to do things right, build teams, open a new market. You know, some, it gets me excited as a personality type. I'm I'm that kind. Uh, whenever it's um, uh, Whenever the situation is the opposite, right? So it's more calm. You need to focus just on maybe cost savings and you know making the company uh, more procedure based and less you know let's go get it. Um, often, like I, I tend to be less excited uh, just because I'm, I'm I'm attracted to new things, new projects, and, and to learning also about new things. So certainly, like it's always been like ups and downs inside. You know, within the within the span of these ten years, there's always been like periods of hyper growth, hyper learning, and periods of less growth and less learning. So whenever I have those periods, I often I question myself like, should I continue? Should I stay? What what you know? What am I gonna do with my life? Or if I didn't have Alaska, what would I do? And this is like psychologically, it just happens to me. But at the end of the day, when I my own my own answer is to look around and ask myself if I'm happy to work with the people and people means employees slash business partners slash investors slash also suppliers am I happy you know to wake up every day and try to bring value you know along the value chain with these kind of people with these people and and I, I've always answered yes to myself I, I I feel super lucky to be working with with these kind of people there that I that I believe are super smart and are making an impact in a you know in um in craftsmanship in Italy in the way we communicate it. I think this I think the world is a better world because also because in a tiny tiny way, very, very tiny way, but also because we are doing what we're doing. So we're bringing value to a lot of people. And that, you know, fills my heart and not just uh not just my mind. And yeah, if yeah. I, if like to to answer in a different way to the same question is um, I'm still in the business, so I cannot speak about myself like quitting or not, 
you know, managing to do what I set set out to do. But I I met a lot of people that have projects and then now they're doing something different because the project didn't go the way they expected it to do or they hoped uh, it would go. To be honest, like nothing really happened to them. So the risk that sometimes you're thinking in your mind, oh my God, I'm, my life will be over. Oftentimes, if you if you mitigate your risk in a in a reasonable way, oftentimes you're gonna learn a lot. Uh, yeah, maybe you're gonna disappoint a few people, but as long as your approach is, I'm gonna give it a hundred percent, my absolute best, and then of course it's entrepreneurship. So the market will decide whether the service or the product that I offer is valuable. But th- that's the market risk. You can never take that away. You know. As long as you gave a hundred percent, there is really nothing to lose in my in my view. Yeah, yeah, I I I think that's great and very wise, and I love both of your answers. You know, you may be the first entrepreneur that actually admitted that they got bored during the slow times, <laughs> and and it caused them to start looking around. But I think that's pretty common as well because I, I know I've been through that myself, and sometimes. The, the big opportunity is right after that, if you can mm-hmm. just continue to execute, uh, which is which is part of what you have to do. You know, I'm really curious because a lot of my research has been on this whole idea of an entrepreneurial mindset, which is what we're talking about here. And when I came to Salerno not long ago, um, you know, that's what I was what I was teaching about there. So I'm just curious if you have any, you know, just brief thoughts on um, you know, entrepreneurship in Italy versus entrepreneurship um, in the United States? Because I'm very curious about that. Yeah, I think it's um, it's a very difficult comparison um, for two reasons. One is culture and the other one is size. Um, so the, the easiest uh, comparison is with size because it's quantitative. Um, a lot of times uh, Italian companies have just, uh, you have to take away a zero from every number you see to compare it to the US. And it's just a a reflection of the European market not being integrated as much as the US market. If you look at the US, you should really compare it to Europe in terms of number of people living inside, uh, you know, geography. Uh, Italy and the US are not really comparable, just as much as Italy and Denmark is not really comparable. Uh, you know, one is a country with five million people. Sometimes I hear, even in the political discussion in the U.S., you know, look at Denmark. You know, they're doing this differently. Yeah, but the U.S. is <laughs> yeah. hundred million people, and Denmark is five. Denmark is like yeah. as big as half of Lombardy. It's essentially the extended yeah. area around Milan. So it's really non-comparable. Um, but in companies, it's, it's the same. I mean, if you if you if you have a company that makes you know twenty twenty five million in sales, like we we are at that level. In Italy, you know, there's not many companies that started, you know, 10 years ago that, that are, that have reached this kind of size. I think in the U.S., correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you have a company that is like 20 million in sales, 25 million in sales, you're really just a startup. Like if you're at the beginning, you're, you're not a big company, you're not a scale up even. So really there's a, there's a, there's a very, very much of a difference. And I think the, one of the things I love about the um, Americans and the culture is uh, investments in companies, investments in equity is so much more common, even among retail investors. Italians love uh, bricks, right? Houses, real estate. 
They they we often have second homes and third homes, you know. Um, what I what I noticed also from the numbers is a lot of U.S. Uh, citizens they invest in the stock market, you know, public stock market. Well, maybe sometimes they invest in you know startups, but it really makes the stock market and also the the private market way more liquid and way more prone to 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 be innovative right because you have so much capital flowing to different projects sometimes this creates also bubbles it, it creates also like it creates situations where you see oh my god they get they, they've given funding to these projects i would never put even a single euro in, in something like that but yes i think yes. that's also part of the game right to fund crazy stuff that doesn't will never work but but among those uh you know thousands of projects that get funded, you get these in, incredibly innovative companies because there's an easier la- uh, access to capital. That, that, that's something that is completely missing in Italy. It's now starting to be a little bit more active than it was 10 years ago, the, the access to capital, but it's still in a very, very, very early stage. So size um, is makes a huge difference because when when I'm when I'm speaking with, you know, let's say someone like me but based out of New York, they often have, um, uh, in, ter- in terms of, in terms of sizing, like they often they often have uh, ambitions that are way way big. They think bigger in this way. They're I think they're taught to think bigger uh, in this way, whereas Italians are often thinking about building an Italian champion, right? Yeah. There are exceptions. I'm not saying there are not exceptions, but often on average, I see a lot of Italians saying, I'm going to build the Italian champion. And then when the American player wants to come to Europe, they're going to buy me out. Something along this line, yeah. right? Because they invent, usually the Americans are the ones with the funds, right? And we, we, can only, we cannot really compete. There are exceptions. And I think the, you know, the new generation of entrepreneurs that maybe started in the US, we speak English, so we have access to your podcast, for example. So we get examples from outside of our bubble, right? Oftentimes the conversations also among ourselves are like, why don't we try to build the one the one company buying, you know, the you know the local champions. And we the US. Which, yeah. yeah. Or the yeah. even the US. But even just that would be even just by buying yeah. maybe the local champion in France, in Spain, in Germany, for an Italian company is already reversing the trend. It's often the opposite happening, right? So this is the new generation. Um, in the old generation, like especially in the in the two decades after the World War II and in the eighties and nineties, so the fifties and sixties and eighties and nineties, those forty years really transformed Italy from a poor country to a to a very wealthy country. Um, and 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 it made a lot of people rich and a lot of entrepreneurs great, building great companies. You know, back in the back in the days, I think it was a bit different because the the there was um, there was a lot of space. Uh, for example, the fashion industry, let's say, in the in the seventies and in the eighties, created massive companies outside of Italy because we were the ones. Uh, somehow we had a good situation going for the economy, very, very creative people uh, putting their minds to fashion design. And at the same time, the capability and the know-how to create products all in the same, all in the same country with the world as a global, you know, with a wholesale approach 
and the world becoming richer and richer, you know, buying products, you know, from our country. So it was a perfect combination. And, that, and that's why you now have, you know, you have Prada, you have Versace, you have Dolce Gabbana, you have Armani, uh, you have Ferragamo, Bottega Veneta, all these major brands, Zegna even, they were created d- during those years, right? So yeah. I think it was yeah. slightly different uh, back then. And that's, uh, that's something maybe we can recreate. Yeah. I, well, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, when I was there in Salerno, which is not probably the epicenter of entrepreneurship like Milan is, I think, um, you know, I, I saw a lot of interest in from the students from all majors um, in this idea of an entrepreneurial mindset. And, and um, you know, I, I think there is a, uh, I think, I think there's a real focus on that now, uh, or an emerging focus, let me put it that way. But it's interesting to hear you talk because even listening to you talk about Italy reminds me some of Florida, where real estate has been one of the primary um, investment opportunities, um, and uh, also tourism, which is, of course, you know, a primary mm-hmm along with fashion, tourism is a primary industry there. And it's been really interesting to see the rise of technology in Florida and also seeing it, you know, I've, I, you're the third entrepreneur that I've interviewed there. And all three of the companies were really focused on technology and the use of technology in a particular space. Yeah. So it's really an interesting uh, trend to watch, I think. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I saw was this just real focus in this on customer value, creating customer value in Italy among everybody. And I think that's a very powerful uh, way to approach entrepreneurship. So I, I expect really positive things and lots more growth and talking with you and some of the other entrepreneurs, it's, it's very exciting to see. I just have to ask you, um, you know, you're there in Milan and Milan was hit really hard by COVID and uh, all of Italy, of course, but Milan really was kind of the, the, the epicenter of it. And one of the things that I think is very important for every entrepreneur to think about is how to build a resilient company, not just be a resilient themselves. But um, do you have any, any um, you know, could you share a little bit about how you weathered that um, that storm because that was that was really tough for everybody worldwide, but Milan in particular got hit early and hard. Totally, it was so tough to think back to to that period because you had you had on one side you had to continue working and saving essentially saving the company. On the other side, you had this uh, major tragedy, and it wasn't just like it wasn't just like people on the newspapers. It was people you knew, you know. So it's. Uh, was it was sad and tragic on on all levels, personal and professional. And um, in terms of like how we we try to save and turn around the company, um, just uh, to give a little bit of context, it, it hit us at the worst possible time because we had just raised money to <clears throat> to internationalize and open new stores. We opened in we we opened in two thousand nineteen, just before COVID. Um, seven stores in six months of which parents in london were two of the seven and we were about to open new york which we opened after the first wave of the pandemic just just because like we we couldn't physically go there we couldn't couldn't do anything so it, we were really stretched um towards internationalizing internationalizing the business and opening stores 
So it was it was the worst of timing. But at the same time, um, so after the first few days of um, not knowing really where which direction to go to, we we hit pause. We said, okay, let's focus on cash flow, number one thing, you know, and let's focus on making sure that we don't, you know, we 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 survive ourselves, but also the value chain of Alaska survives. So all the the artisans and the, and the workshops. Let's work with them because the the number one thing we said to ourselves is this is going to be long, but this is temporary. So this is a crisis. We were sure back then. I still remember the conversations. The conversations we were sure back then that it was going to be a long. We we never we nobody knew how long, but it wasn't an intrinsic problem inside the company that wasn't like it wasn't something that we did wrong it wasn't something that the customers <clears throat> the customers don't want our products anymore no it was something external so as long as you're able to weather the storm things will go will go back to normality and never i never for one second believed that people would just work re- remotely not really see each other anymore work from Hawaii and Singapore and and just have connections with other human beings through a screen like we're doing right now. I, I've always thought this is going to be, it was already happening before this pandemic. This is going to be a part of our life, but it will, will, it will not be 100% of our life because, that, because we humans have different needs. So we need to see each other, we need to go out. We What, what do we love like living in big cities? Because there's other people, there's other stuff going around. You know, it's just a trend that is irreversible, irreversible. But at the time, so the, this this new external factor came in. So we had to change ourselves. So we focused on cash flow. We built a cash flow, um, you know, system to track it every single week to understand cash in, cash out, what was happening. We tried to work with landlords to reduce costs as much as possible. We tried to protect, number one, our employees, number two, our artisans, our you know, workshops and everything else, we cut it down. So no marketing, nothing like no new investments, no, obviously no hiring. So we tried to preserve and kind of go into stealth mode, like, and, and survive. And so that's number one. Number two, let's focus the company on casual. Because as soon as, as soon as the pandemic hit, we had like a 95% drop in sales. Because at the time we were just sending, not just, but, 70% of our sales were formal shoes for the office for men. So let's focus on casual. Let's focus on and remotely. We started developing all the all the product designs. We were already we were we were COVID ready in terms of website, you know, online capabilities because we had we had been born that way, right? So that was not not something that we we had to work on. Uh, but it was more like let's have a different value proposition. Instead of being formal, we're gonna turn into casual. We're, we're gonna keep the values the same. So made into the excellence, uh, excellent raw materials, you know, Italian style, you know, timeless and understated, but it's gonna be for your time, you know, outside of the office. And second, and thirdly, um, a big question to ask, and this is something that is so valuable also for other entrepreneurs because it's so applicable to any industry and any company. What are the assets that you have that you're not getting results from? And and we were at the time, our only value proposition was 
shoes for men. But the assets that we have, we had and we still have, is the ability to form a connection with consumers and customers and a community. So for us, we were limiting ourselves in terms of one single category, which, which in a way, you know, you can say it was easier to be, to be positioned as the, you know, the category leader. But in another way, we were just limiting ourselves and the ability to sell more products to the same consumer, right? Or uh, in many of our stores or even online, but especially in retail, we would get a lot of our customers with their girlfriends, with their, you know, um, you know, partners or, or wives, they would come in and they would be uh, choosing the products together or oftentimes actually the woman choosing the product for the man. That's, that's something that happens all the time. So we're limiting ourselves to the, the value proposition was not really leveraging the capability, the asset inside of our company. So we said to ourselves, why are we doing that? Why don't we do this? So it was a time in the crisis, it was really a time for reflection which is something that often even in your personal life i realize it comes from crisis it doesn't when things go well you don't really stop and think about this you know structural changes right so we came out of the pandemic cash flow was preserved casual new casual outlook and then for formal attire and formal shoes came back without you know cannibalizing the casual uh, business unit so we have, we have both now and we have women and we have clothes for men and now we're, we're going to have clothes for men. So it was really transformation. And we, you know, we tripled the company's size uh, in the last two years because of that. What a great lesson did all of that. And, you know, unfortunately, stuff happens. <laughs> Crisis happens, you know, hopefully we won't live through one quite like that. But what great lessons in all of that. And, and I love that you looked at your underperforming assets and, and the assets that you weren't even using and said, what can we do here? And you managed to turn, find the silver lining, so to speak, I guess in that horrible cloud. But I'm, I love this conversation. I could talk on, but I know you've got things to do there. It's a little later. Uh, <laughs> it's a little later for you than it is for me um, here in Florida. But this has been fabulous, Enrico. And I've, I've just really, I've learned a lot and I know all of our listeners would. And I'm hoping, you know, that uh, maybe somewhere down the line, we can have you back on after you get more stores open in New York and maybe one here in Tampa. And uh, who knows? You never know. I'd love, uh, but just yeah, that we'd love. Well, come on down to Tampa. We'd love to have you here. And and I, uh, you know, I invite all of our listeners to to check out uh, um, uh, Valeska and uh, all the products and and see what Enrique Casati and his partner are doing. And um, again, it's just been such a delight for me, and and uh, really appreciate you taking the time. I always end with a question. Um, you've given so much great advice, but I always ask my listeners if they had one piece of advice for someone who was starting on this journey or early in this journey, what would that be? Yeah, I think that's, first of all, thank you for having me here. It's a, it's a real pleasure. And I, as like, if I can spend more time in the US, I will. <laughs> I take any opportunity to come to, to your country. Um, I think I said it before, but I'm going to say it once again, and I think maybe maybe in a better way, uh, the ability and the um, take the time to take small risks before before the big project of, of your life. 
um, I think that's that's great advice and that's a great practice in just like in relationships, you're not gonna get married often. You're not oftentimes you're not gonna get married to the first person that you have a relationship with. Um, I know some people do, and uh, but but often you kind of practice. Um, try try to do that. And if I have one regret, uh, you know, thinking about myself as a student, I was very much focused on books, which is fine because I mean I was taught by my mom that I had to do the homework and stuff, but not not so much in practice. I think I, I should have done and I, I would have enjoyed also kind of like putting the theoretical knowledge into practice in small, tiny, tiny projects that you can, you know, you can fail uh, terribly and not get hurt too much. You know, that's my the only advice that I have. I think that's fantastic advice. And it, it's really important to understand that failure is not fatal, right? I think Perfect. Winston Churchill said that failure is not fatal. So, Enrique, this has been delightful. How can our listeners find out more about Valesco and maybe um, connect with you? Yes, absolutely. So connecting with me would be on LinkedIn. So my name and last name and, uh, and the name of the company, I, I, I often show up and sometimes post about the company or the books I read and things, like, things that I find inter interesting. And uh, Velasco, the best way to follow us is uh, what we, through our newsletter on the website. So Velasco.com and VelascoWomen.com and on Instagram, Velasco Milano and Velasco Women. Wonderful. Thank you again, Enrico. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. Have a great day. Ciao. Ciao. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor. Factor.